verses 6 through 9. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Would you please bow with me and let's pray. God, we bow before you, recognizing you and confessing that you are our shade from the scorching winds of trials and tribulations. Confessing, God, that you are the shelter we need from your righteous judgment. Confessing, O oh God, that we cannot save ourselves, that we need you. So, Lord, we ask, Father, for you to feed us this morning. We ask you, Lord, to nourish our hearts and our minds on eternal food, on the things that will last. Forgive us, Lord, for accepting substitutes. So, Father, I pray for your will to be accomplished and our hearts and our minds to be drawn to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. It always amazes me anyway, some of the things that I remember from growing up. Things that would seem like you'd want to forget about that, but yet they come back to mind. In one such instance, and I don't know why I thought about this other than in preparation for today, occurred my senior year of high school. Now, I share this basketball illustration with a little bit of trepidation because my wife always tells me, you know, Mark, the older you get, the better you were at basketball. So I share this recognizing that, you know, I was just your average player in high school playing ball. But I remember one game where we weren't doing very well at all. We were behind on the scoreboard. We were playing horrible. And I will never forget, coach called a timeout. Coach Baker. And he had a way of chewing you out where he would turn his head, close his eyes, and turn beet red and just water everything within a five-mile radius. In fact, the very first game my, soon to, my future wife, Jody and her family, attended, they sat right behind the bench. They only did that one time. And I remember in this game, he called a timeout, and we knew we were in for it because we were running over, and he was already tilted, turning red with his eyes closed. We sat down, and he started going through every starter, letting us know, letting us know that we were not living up to his expectations. And he got to me, and in a nice, calm, gentle voice, he said, Herod! You've got one more rebound than a dead man. I want you to go on that court and get me a rebound. And oh, I got mad. I went on that court with one purpose in mind. One thing on my heart. I went up and with all my ability and might, when there was a shot taken and that shot missed, I got me a rebound. And I chinned it and I turned and I think I looked at the coach and winked. No. No, I did not. And I made that outlet pass because I needed a fire lit underneath me. I needed to be reminded of what one of my purposes was to be on the court. 
This morning as we look at this text, I want it to be that moment where as a church, we step back and we are reminded of what our purpose is. Now this may seem like an odd text to do that from, but really it's not. Because of the way that this has been written, it draws attention to John the Baptist. Now it's a little odd. Because we're still in the prologue of John. We're still in the introduction. Verses 1 through 18 is a passage that highlights the transcendent power of who Jesus is. It makes no, or leaves no doubt that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. It starts from verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. But the puzzling thing is this. In verses 6 through 8... The gospel writer stops to talk about John the Baptist. And then he does the same thing again in verse 15. So the question has always been, why is John writing about Jesus Christ in this eloquent passage that many believe was a hymn in the early church? Why in the world does he interject John the Baptist into this? And I think there are two reasons. And they are reasons that deal with our witness. You see, verse 6 begins by calling us to be witnesses who have to depend on the power of God to accomplish our purpose. Now I say that because verse 6 highlights the fact that John was an ordinary person. There was a man. See, John was flesh and blood. He was like you. He was like me. John had his ups and his downs, his high points and his low points. And that's important to remember because sometimes I think you and I get the idea that these biblical characters were some sort of supermen or superwomen that never, never got down, never struggled. John struggled at times. In fact, the Gospels tell us that when John was in prison and he was starting to see that he was going to die at the hands of King Herod. No relation, by the way. He sent word to Jesus. Are you really the Messiah? Or is there another one supposed to come? That's real life. That's at the moment of trial where you say, God, where are you? Lord, is this real? John experienced that. He was flesh and blood. But notice, he was sent from God. Now, it's easy for us to read that and think, okay, well, you see, that's where John is different. Now, there is a uniqueness to John's calling. John's birth was announced by the angel Gabriel. Now, I know today we love reveals. We have parties to reveal the gender that the person's going to have a baby. Any reveal hosts the angel Gabriel. No hands. This was unique. Gabriel shows up to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, even in your advanced maternal age, which is a nice way of saying, Elizabeth, you're old, but you're going to have a baby. Word came to Zacharias. He was in such disbelief. He said, no way can this happen. And the angel Gabriel said, okay, just because you doubt, you're not going to say another word till the baby's born, but when he's born, you're going to call his name John. Now, that's unique. But you know what? You and I, can also say we have been sent from God. Not because an angel announced our birth, but because first, you and I were knit together in our mother's womb. 
God has made you according to his plan and according to his purpose. So I can say that every one of us are here because God intended us to be here. And I can also say as a Christian, you have been sent by God because of that passage that says, Go into the world preaching and teaching and baptizing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make disciples. You and I are sent from God. Maybe not to the extent that John is in fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, but you and I have a purpose that is God-given. And Then you come to his name. It says very clearly, that his name was John. John means God is gracious. Now that's the odd thing. Usually we don't associate the grace of God with John's preaching. Because John was a wild man. I mean this is a man that dressed in camel hair. Now I, I don't think camel hair had to be the most comfortable fabric. And he ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, this is somebody you got to go see just to say you've seen him. And the crowds came. But not just because of his appearance, but because John preached with power. John's message wasn't tailored to gain the, a hearing from the ears of those that were movers and shakers. In fact, when the religious establishment showed up as the Pharisees, John, we are told in the Gospels, looked at him and he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to escape the coming judgment? You know what John just called the religious leaders? He called them a bunch of snakes and said, Why are you here? You're not going to escape the judgment of God. Don't you think they loved hearing that? Then John says, The axe is at the root of the tree. Judgment's about to come. You say John's name means gracious? Yes, because those warnings are an act of God's grace. You understand that God is under no obligation to warn you and I of impending judgment. If God had judged from the get-go and brought his wrath upon the earth, our God would have been absolutely justified. No one would have said, God, we don't deserve this. We would have said, Lord, you're right. But God in His grace says judgment is coming. God in His grace says the light is coming into the world. Be ready. And that was the message of John. Now I say all of that to get to this point. Verse 6 points to the normalcy of John. He was a man. A man sent from God. His name was John. John, to be effective, had to rely upon the power of God. He had to manifest the power of God. He had to rely upon God. He was not one who had a genealogy that he could rely upon to gain a hearing. He was one that had to rely upon the power of God. Church, we must remember that God has sent us into the world. And we must rely upon His power. There is a tendency today for us to figure out, well, we can program it. We can administer it. We can control it. And that leads to a church that begins to dry up and wither. We need to hunger for the power of God. I would remind you what Paul wrote in Romans where he said, The gospel is what? The power of God unto salvation. Do we hunger to know the power of God in our midst? Do we hunger to know and to see the things that only God can do? Or have we fallen into taking a view of God's power as normal, as routine? There can be nothing normal about the power of God. And if we feel like our Christian life is on cruise control, we need to pray for a fresh infusion of the power of God to quicken our hearts, to move our ministry, so that we might see the name of God glorified. 
It's about power. One of my favorite films is Apollo 13. There's the point in it where after the explosion has taken place on the command module and the three astronauts, Swigert, Hayes, and Lovell, are trying to figure out how in the world can they get back to Earth safely. There's a whole crew of engineers that are working at NASA. Gene Krantz, the, the mission control leader, has assembled the best and the brightest to figure out how we can get these three men back home. They have their slide rules out. They're working the problem. And one of the men, a man by the name of John Aaron, speaks up. He says, guys, these calculations don't mean a thing. Even if we figure out the right course, the whole issue is power. If we don't have power, we can't turn on the parachutes. We can't turn on the engines. We can't turn on the navigating computer. We can't do anything. The first and foremost question we have to deal with is that of power. Church, the first question we have to deal with is are we relying on the power of God to accomplish the plan of God? And if we are, then we will see great things happen for the kingdom. And if we are depending on the power of God, it means we will be a people of prayer. Seeking Him. That before we do anything, we will say, Lord, we need you. We need you to show up because God's power is applied to accomplish his purpose. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 highlights John's role, his purpose. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Look down to verse 15 that we'll get, with, get to in a few weeks. John bore witness. So what was John's purpose? Witness. Testify. The power of God through this normal man was applied to fulfill the purpose of God in being a witness. You see, here's the danger. Power without purpose will not accomplish anything for eternity. That power has to be applied in purpose. Think about what happens when you can take purpose... And you can apply or power and apply it with precision and purpose. Many of us have had that experience where we go to get some new tires, say, on the car. The oil changed and new tires and all that. And you know what happens? You are welcome to have a seat in our lobby. Just ignore the skeletons. They've been waiting. We'll get be about an hour, which is code for three. But what happens between that moment... And if you go up to Bristol at a race and a car pulls into the pit and you have all these men that jump out and that car gets four new tires, gas, gets oil, gets cleaned up, a new windshield cleaned in under 30 seconds. <laughs> power, but power with purpose and precision. That's the distinction. I could come up here with a golf club and scare everyone to death. And I could swing that golf club with power. I could swing it and make you think I was ready for the PGA Tour. But if you put a golf ball in front of me, now it's a whole different story. Because now I have to apply power with precision. Purpose. You see, the... The power of God is not just this vague, nebulous force. It is the power of God applied with precision to His purpose. And our purpose, look at verse 7, witness. That's the phrase for taking the stand. 
He wants our lives to be lived as if you and I can take the stand to testify as to who Jesus is. And notice how he's clear about this, to bear witness about the light. He wants us to be clear that the light is seen, that Jesus is known. Now, this brings up the question, if Jesus is the light, which he is, and this is emphasized in verse 9, the true light, isn't the true light self-evident? I mean, why does the true light need someone to witness about it? Wouldn't people know? Not necessarily. Scripture tells us that we are blind and we love the darkness. So some of us can't see the light because we don't want to. Some of us are so entrenched in sin that we don't recognize the light and we need somebody to point that out. You see, the role of the witness is sometimes to point out what is going on. That's what the witness does. In 2007, a young man stepped off the subway in New York City. He was dressed in jeans and a t-shirt and he was carrying with him a violin case. He stopped, opened up the violin case, left it open, leaned against the wall and started playing some very beautiful music. It was clear this guy knew exactly what he was doing. In fact, some people appreciated it. A friend of his that was with him kept counting and 32 people donated $27 to his cause. They would have been very shocked to find out that the young man playing was a maestro by the name of Joshua Bell. That four nights before he had taken that same violin, a million dollar Stradivarius, and it played to a sold out hall in Boston where people paid a minimum of $100 a seat to hear him play. But nobody knew. They heard the music. It was beautiful. Wouldn't it have been different, though, if there had been somebody walking the street saying, Hey, hey, you've got to hear this guy. It's Joshua Bell. Now, somebody may have said, I don't know Joshua Bell. But because there's somebody saying, listen to this, guess what? I'll check it out. That's the role of the witness. The light is the light. The light doesn't change. But because of our blindness, our, uh, the blindness of the world, we are to be witnesses pointing to the light saying, this is something you won't believe, something you've never heard, something you need. We are to highlight Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is the true light that is coming into the world. And notice what he says, to bear witness that all might believe through him. Church, our calling is not just to share facts about Jesus. It's not to share Bible trivia. It's not just to give knowledge. Our point is to testify. To say, here's the biblical revelation about who Jesus is. Here is what he has done in my life. How he has saved me from my sin so that all the world might believe. That's our purpose. We want to lead people to faith. And this word believe is one that John's going to come back to time and time and time again. This word belief is not just an acknowledgement of facts. The word belief in the gospel carries with it the idea of staking your entire life upon it. J. Edwin Ord illustrates this. He's a, a preacher from years past who focused on the need for repentance. He was speaking at a university, and at this university, during a question and answer time, one young lady raised her hand and said, Pastor Orr, you've been talking about repentance, but isn't the Christian faith about just believing? Isn't belief enough just to know, isn't that simply Christianity? Pastor Orr said, great question. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe in marriage? She said, yes. Why do you believe in marriage? She said, well, marriage gives a stable foundation for all of society. Marriage gives security, security to, to children. So marriage is important. He said, very good. I'm a, an ordained minister. I'll be glad to perform your wedding, wedding ceremony right now. She said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
I've not found anybody to marry. I'm not ready. I'm not for right now. I can't do that. I mean, she's stammering like I am. He said, that's my point. It's one thing to believe all those things about marriage, but it's another thing to pursue it and do it. Faith is doing it. It's living. It's living for his purpose. It involves repentance and coming to him. So we get this idea that John was a man that lived with the power of God for the purpose of God that all might believe through him. But then we come to this third thing in verse 8. When God calls us to be a witness with his power and his purpose, he wants us to know our place. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, here's the second reason I think John is inserted into this prologue. The first is that John's a model of what a witness should be. The second thing is this, he's a warning. You see, it's believed at the time John wrote this gospel that there was a certain celebrity status that John the Baptist had attained. He was well known. Even after his death, people still identified with the preaching and the message of John the Baptist. Even in the book of Acts, in Acts 19, when Paul gets to Ephesus and he's speaking with some people and he says, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? They said, no, we've been baptized in the baptism of John the Baptist. And so here at the beginning, John is wanting to show us that no one is to attain a celebrity status, that we all are to point to the light. It's a good word for us as a church in America. Our culture is awash with the worship of celebrity. You know what a celebrity is? It's someone that's well-known for being well-known. Doesn't mean they've done anything. They're just well-known. We follow celebrities so easily. And it's very easy for that mentality to sneak into the church. Now, we all have our favorite preachers. We have preachers we gravitate toward. Some may say, well... A Billy Graham was my all-time favorite, or a Matt Chandler, or a John Piper, or the list could go on and on. But we need to keep things in balance to say that in the work of the kingdom, no one person is more important than another. We all serve a role. It may be my role or Nathan's role to stand in front and to teach like this, but it doesn't mean we're any more valuable than a person who works behind the scenes taking the meal to someone who's hungry. Every role in the kingdom of God is important. I remember a professor at seminary who tried to hammer that thinking in to us young preacher boys. He said, young men, I want you to ask yourselves a question. When you all get out of here and you're pastoring in first church, whatever town, ask yourself this. If all the pastors in my town went on strike and all the garbage men went on strike, who would the people want back first? Exactly. A dose of humility that says, I have a role in the kingdom of God, but my role is just as important as your role. And the point is that all of us need to be fulfilling that role. John's point was to point toward the light. That's what is his place. That's what he was to do. And he is saying that as witnesses, we need to know our place. It's all for the light. So we need to witness in power, with purpose. Knowing our place. It's about the kingdom. It really is. It's not about us. And then we need to know the point. Look at verse 9. The true light. The genuine thing. You see, there have always been false lights that would come into the world and say, I'm it. 
false teachers, false messiahs, people who promise the salvation that we long for. Follow this plan, and you'll find the happiness you want. Put this into practice, and you'll feel the wholeness that your soul longs for. All those are false lights. The idea of the true light is that which is genuine, that doesn't fade that will accomplish exactly what is needed. True light. No other light will do. A week ago as we were doing preparations and getting the house ready for Ellen's graduation and celebration, you know, everything had to be perfect. The house has to be so clean that nobody will think, or people will think nobody lives there. One of the things I was assigned to that week was that I had to change, be sure all the light bulbs were burning my job and I noticed much to my chagrin that in our foyer which we live in a two-story house in the foyer the, the lights that hang down, hung down from the ceiling there were several of them burn out yeah exactly I've always wondered about those lights why do we install lights that you have to risk light and limb to change the bulb my 6'4 son was busy with other things and I had the ladder in the house so okay it was time and I went up the ladder and this is what I did before I went to buy light bulbs I went up the ladder and I unscrewed one of the bulbs and this is why and I looked at it and I took it with me to the store because the one thing I didn't want to do was to get home and find out the bulbs I bought were the wrong size because I only wanted to go up that ladder a few times had I brought home another bulb, it wouldn't have fit. It'd been frustrating, even dangerous. You see, in our lives, there's only one way of salvation. The enemy in the world around us wants to tell us any light will do. You find the light that works for you, but it's not that way. If the Lord God made us, He knows how to fix us. And because of our rebellion, we need to be saved. We are in darkness. We are in death. We need the light. And that's why he emphasizes the true light that gives light to everyone. And that's a way of saying there is no other means by which we can be saved. There's no other light. Everyone will either be saved by this light or they will not be saved at all. And yes, that's an exclusive message that flies in the face of our pluralistic culture. But the gospel is clear. Jesus is the way the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except by Him. He is the true light that gives light to everyone. And notice, was coming into the world. The true light we need to save us is not found within us or on this planet. We don't generate it. There's no sense in Christianity of us saying, well, if you will just calm yourselves down and meditate and find your inner light, then you'll be saved. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel says we are in darkness and we cannot illuminate, we cannot change our own hearts. So God took the initiative and sent the light into the world. And that's the glory of John chapter 1 verse 5. The darkness could not overcome it. Even death could not stop it. And so he says, remember the point. Church, we've been entrusted with the gospel, the message of the light. And as people who are frail and weak, we have to rely on God's power to fulfill His purpose, to keep our place in mind. It's about Him to know the point of our existence.
to witness to the light. When we lose track of that, it's tragic. Soren Kierkegaard is a Danish philosopher. He used to tell a story about a deep sea diver. Now this is back in the days where deep sea divers had to wear the big metal helmets with the little flap right there. It had the cord, the hose that went into the back of the helmet. Had metal boots on. I mean serious business. This deep sea diver was getting ready to go in the water. His crew showed up. They set up the compressor. They got all the gear on. He was weighted. He was ready to go. And so he comes and he gets to the point and then he lifts his legs and he steps into the tub. And he sits down in the bathtub. And then he reaches up and he pulls the plug so the water drains out. Kierkegaard would say, that's silly, isn't it? He would say, but look at the church around us. Are we getting ready with everything we're doing and then failing to live up to our purpose? Are we deep sea divers? But we're sitting in the tub. God forbid it. Let us follow the model of John the Baptist and proclaim, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The true light that the darkness cannot stop. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now.